The trade deadline's passed, and what a deadline it was. But what are the fantasy ramifications of one of the busiest trade deadlines any of us can remember? I'll ask five of the expert analysts from BaseballHQ.com, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. Welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Saturday, July the 31st. It's show number 37 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davidge, your host, and we have another great roundtable edition for you. It's our trade deadline special roundtable edition. We'll talk about the deadline from the fantasy angle, which trades had the most fantasy impact, which players will see the biggest gains and losses, and why it all went the way it went. It's our first ever trade deadline roundtable edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The frenzy is over, so we gotta talk some baseball. Well, something like 70 trades, almost 100 players changing their addresses, but what does it mean to fantasy managers? I'll ask our Blue Ribbon panel all about it, but first let's introduce them, starting with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here. Nice table you have here. Isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, inlaid. I don't know what it's inlaid with, probably pizza stains. Uh, (laughs) Matt Dodge, welcome. I think this is your first time on Baseball HQ Radio, and there's another one coming up in a few weeks. That's right. Looking forward to that one as well, Patrick. Glad to be here. Alex Becky, our frequent flyer columnist, welcome. Thank you. A little bit of tech support required to get you on the call, but that was good. And former Baseball HQ Radio star Ryan Bloomfield, welcome as well. Former star, you make it sound like I'm old, man. Uh, <laughs> thanks for that. No, I, I just thought you maybe moved on in free agency. Yeah, he I... big time does. That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to arrange a trade to rates and barrels, but I couldn't push it through without a prospect, and I wasn't willing to pay the price, so... Understood. Understood. Happy to be back, man. Before we can uh, start talking about particular trades and particular players, I'm just curious what you guys thought was the biggest surprise of the whole five days, seven days that we're talking about or the whole trade period. Uh, Ryan, why don't you go first? Uh, I mean, the obvious surprise for me, I, I did not expect this much player movement. Um, and I mean, it's a, it's a good surprise. Like I was pretty much glued to my seat uh, the last few days. Part of that is because I'm holding a newborn while doing that, but just following all the news and, and all the rumors and that sort of thing, uh, just the sheer volume of, of trades. I know we have our kind of sheet that we're working on in the, just the last few days, 44 total trades we put together on the site. Uh, three pretty much full days of playing time today analysis and, re- and eventually even had to break up the final day Friday into AL and NL just shows the volume of everything that happened. So um, was not expecting that much buying and selling going on from everybody in contention, but not a complaint. It was uh, it was an absolute blast to, to follow along, speculate, and then now we got to figure out what to do with all of it. But I guess that's why we're having this podcast. I have to ask you, Ryan, we're both in the uh, Tout Wars American League, and you have the Fab Hammer, so I'm curious, have you decided which way you're going with your uh, with your Fab Hammer as far as which guy you're going to take out of the N- National League to American League crossovers? It, it, it's, it's, it's a super interesting kind of thing that I've got, and I, I'm not sure how many people care, but out there, there are, there are a bunch of crossover owners that, that have this, and I think the obvious two in the American League are, are Starling Marte and Anthony Rizzo. 
you look at the HQ projections, which we just updated. And Ray, I know you were up pretty late uh, Friday night getting getting all of those in our system and new park factors and all that sort of thing. The, the projections at Starling Marte is, are pretty much going away, the best uh, single player in a vacuum. Um, so it would make sense for me to use the hammer on Marte. But a lot of his value comes from stolen bases. And looking at the standings, I've got about 10 steals. I'm, I'm about 10 steals behind the next guy. So how much of that Marte value can I actually improve in my standings? So I'm going to go back and forth a lot these next uh, this next day between Anthony Rizzo and Starling Marte. So we'll see. And I think the takeaway there for, for the folks listening out there is, is don't just look at our projections in a vacuum. Look at those categories look at your standings and where can you if you have the uh you have the hammer if you're in an al or in an nl only league where can you make up ground the most based on where you're at in the standings uh, that's another huge piece to, to fit this all together ray murphy what surprised you ryan teed me up so nicely for this i uh i, I can't pass it up 44 trades something like 90 players who i had to go through and run through our park factor engine last night after changing teams and Trevor story isn't one of them. <laughs> I, you know, and I'm not here to pile on the Rockies. Uh, you know, I'll be charitable and say, you know, they have their reasons, but uh, you know, I think the takeaway here from a fantasy perspective for me is we always get this question on podcasts and first pitch events in the subscriber forums. Like, Who's the player most likely to be traded, you know, to change leagues? You know, people have been devaluing Trevor's story, going back to March auctions, going back to from what the minute after Aaron Otto got traded, it was obvious that story was going to leave and there was a 50-50 chance he was going to go to the AL. Not only did he not go to the AL, he gets two more months in Coors Field. We don't know anything. I was wondering about that too, because the, the official explanation was that they want, if Trevor Story wants to leave, they'll let him play out. Then they'll get the draft pick compensation for him if he leaves as a free agent. And I understand all that. And perhaps they were hoping that they would get a trade offer of a prospect that was a bit better or more certain of a thing than whatever they might get in uh, the this coming off season for next draft. And they think to themselves, well, we're going to get a guy who need, who's four years away. Maybe I can get a prospect who's two years away. And maybe they just didn't get that offer. I, I don't know. It was very surprising to me. Matt, what surprised you? What surprised me is the injured players who got moved at the deadline. You know, Kyle Schwarber and Eddie Rosario are both still a couple of weeks away. And Nick Madrigal is a 2022 play. And I was surprised that they all moved in you know, in trades at the deadline and just didn't remember that happening in recent deadlines gone by. And Trey Turner goes to Los Angeles. He's on the COVID IL, which I don't exactly know what that means as far as time that he's going to miss. I think he has to get like negative tests and stuff like that before he can come off that list. So add that to your list of injured guys as well, or out of action guys, I guess we could say. And Alex, Becky, uh, what surprised you? I think for me, the Trey Turner thing was queued up perfectly. I was really shocked by that trade, especially with Corey Seager coming back yesterday. Uh, there's just so much depth. I think that has a fancy impact in terms of platooning and uh, other factors. Um, the other thing that surprised me, and I know Matt Dodge will appreciate this, is that the Yankees made all these trades without paying any of the players the salaries this year. So they're basically getting Anthony Rizzo to pay for play for them for free this year. And I was just shocked by the way they structured those deals and was very impressed by bringing in those stars. 
but but they still had to cut Louis Sessa for salary cap room, which made no sense to me at all. Exactly. <laughs> I'm glad you added that. Getting world-class athletes to play for nothing? What is this, the Olympics? <laughs> well, it might be a new trend, too. <laughs> or the Major League Playoffs, <laughs> for that matter. <laughs> all right, let's move along to the trades themselves, you guys. I'd like to start. We had... Uh, major, intermediate, and minor trades on our spreadsheet, color-coded green, yellow, and nothing. And uh, I'm going to start with the major trades. These are the green ones. And Ray Murphy, which major trade do you think was the most important from the fantasy perspective and why? I'm going to pile on what Ryan was talking about with this fab hammer. And it took to me, the, I'll start with the Marte Luzardo Oakland miami deal here, just because I love both sides of it. I, you know, there, there are all kinds of ripple effects in – Oakland, not just because of the Marte acquisition, they made a couple of other moves that you know made that a really crowded roster as well. Ryan talked a little bit about the you know the stone base implications there, not just specific to his fantasy league, but also because you probably have some questions in Oakland about their organizational philosophy and how much he's going to run it all there. And then there's the other side of this trade, which I think is just fascinating because Luzardo is a really big pull for a rental of two months of Marte here in terms of talent. You think about, you know, this was a, I don't remember if he was quite in the ADP top hundred this past spring, but you know, he was pretty close when, you know, when it looked like he was healthy and you know, that, that's just a premium talent that the Marlins still have to come for a number of years. But the flip side of that is he was available and he got moved because he's been just utterly lost this year. So it's kind of a challenge trade and it'd be really interesting to see if the Marlins who, by the way, you may have noticed, do really nice work with young pitchers of late, can get Luzardo straightened out and, and how quickly he might deliver there. I love this trade. Well, I think the uh, uh, one of the biggest trades, obviously, was, uh, the, as I said before, the Max Scherzer to Trey Turner deal. But the one that surprised me the most growing up in Illinois was always when the Cubs and the White Sox would trade. I think that creates an interesting dynamic for Chicago. I think there's going to be a lot of debates over that. And uh, I think it'll be fun to see how that turns out. Yeah, just to just to kind of pile up and, and, and Alex, you kind of sniped me with that pick, but I'm just going to. So instead of picking something else, I'm just going to uh, pile on and add on to that a little bit with the Kimbrel move was just fascinating to me from a fantasy standpoint, because a lot of these like, yeah, like the Scherzer trade, Turner trades, those are big. But from a fantasy perspective, right, like they're already on rosters. They're not changing leagues. There's not really much of a you know, rest of the season impact that people can use. But the, the Craig Kimbrell going to the White Sox is just huge in a number of ways in that everybody has Craig Kimbrell and Liam Hendricks on their team as, you know, and they have been two of the top three closers all season. How is that allocation of saves going to be divvied up um, in in on the south side? Uh, Tony Larusa has been, you know, for – for the uh, for the things we can say about Tony Larusa, he is a fantasy baseball friendly manager in terms of the bullpen and roles. Liam Hendricks has been the guy uh, in in for the White Sox, and will that stay 100% Hendricks? Will it be 50-50? Does Kimbrel lose 90% of his value by being a sole setup man? Like that whole thing is fascinating to me. And then you have kind of behind Kimbrel, and I wrote about this in the Speculator a couple weeks ago is right every time a starter leaves there's always there's you know there's next man up um and in the cubs case ryan tapero is also gone uh so you've got an open closer situation there for the cubs and you know who knows how many how many games that lineup is going to win you know going going from here but uh just the the fantasy fallout from that one trade in terms of two of the top three guys at their position 
their value being on edge uh, is, is just fascinating to me, in addition to the obvious crosstown trade between the, between the Cubs and the White Sox. So it's going to be super interesting to see how that shakes out. If I could add one more thing on that, Ryan, um, it, just to pile on what you're saying as well, one of the things that's going to be interesting to see with Kimbrough going to the White Sox is his ERA has just been fantastic this year. I mean, he's only given up two runs. He's got like a .49 ERA for the season. But a big part of that has been the Cubs shifting against left-handed batters. They've gone to shifting 56% of the time against left-handed batters, whereas last year, although it was a shortened season, they were at about 19%. So when you see that kind of differential and see his numbers increase without any major changes in skills, you wonder if the White Sox are going to pick up on those types of analytics to continue that success. Because I don't know that the White Sox shift nearly as much as the Cubs have, especially against left-handed bats. Uh, I'm, I'm going to jump into the same pile. And, and the thing that I find fascinating is that the, the White Sox, by adding Kimbrell and adding – who else did they add? Somebody else I missed on my list here. They had, an, they had another reliever also. But the idea is them and Houston both are deepening the bullpen for the postseason. And Chicago doesn't look like they're going to have any competition in division. So they are clearly setting up for the postseason. And the fact that they've gone deeper and can preserve the innings on or reduce the number of middle relief kind of innings uh, looks like you know they're ready for the postseason. I think it was Andrew Chafin was another Cubs Chafin. Re- uh, reliever who went. I'll just weigh in quickly here and say that for me, Adam Frazier moving to San Diego could be a really impactful move because he's got a pretty huge on-base percentage and he's taking it from one of the least efficient run-producing lineups in baseball to one of the most efficient. And secondarily, San Diego runs a lot. Their stolen base opportunity percentage this year is over 8%. Pittsburgh's was down around 3 and you'd think you know, if you're in Pittsburgh, you'd try anything to score some runs, but apparently they didn't. I wonder if Adam Frazier's going to score an awful lot of runs here and maybe add some bags in addition to that high batting average. I think everything shapes up really nicely for Adam Frazier. Uh, we also had a bunch of intermediate trades. Those are the yellow ones on your score sheet. Uh, which of those was the most important from a fantasy perspective? Alex, Becky, and why? The one that really impressed me from that was the Diego Castillo trade from Tampa to Seattle. I want to differentiate that from the Diego Castillo trade to New York, but or the New York trade. But um, in terms of uh, his saves value, I know there was kind of a platoon situation that occasionally with him and Fairbanks, Tampa. But I think his value may decrease going to Seattle because of the number of uh, save opportunities that Tampa's been generating, especially over the past several years. So. I think that this is something where um, I was surprised to see them trade, um, make the previous trade, trade their closer, Graverman. But I think that Diego Castillo going to Seattle was the one that was the most impactful for uh, fantasy baseball. Moving along, Ryan, back to you. I'm going to go with with Atlanta's kind of trio of moves that they made a little bit under the radar because these weren't the kind of the headline deals, but they pretty much traded for an entirely new outfield. With, with Eddie Rosario, who was a, a, a massive HQ favorite heading, heading into this season, Jorge Soler, um, as well as bringing back Adam Duvall. 
those three guys, you know, provide a major punch uh, to Atlanta's outfield in, in the in the wake of the Ronald Acuna loss, um, almost to the fact where now they've got four kind of full-time outfielders for three spots uh, with, with Jock Peterson in there as well. So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. Obviously, Eddie Rosario is hurt a little bit right now, so Jorge Soler is, is going to benefit, and he's kind of peaking at exactly the right time after a pretty horrible first two and a half months to the season. Um, it'll be interesting to see what a change of scenery and a better lineup does for Jorge Soler there. So I'm going to go with the, in terms of impact, uh, Atlanta bringing in Rosario Soler, uh, both of those and Duval, the first two of those guys being crossover folks for your NL only teams. Um, there's going to be a lot of kind of a lot of big bids on Eddie Rosario and Jorge Soler this coming weekend as new entries into the NL pool. Uh, I really like, and, I'm going to pick on the White Sox again. I really like them picking up Cesar Hernandez to solidify second base so they can have an everyday guy, you know, a consistent guy, a guy with, with the known commodity. He will not hurt. I'm interested to see if he continues to bat second. I know he batted second last night. He's not going to lead off in Chicago. Um, I worry that they could shuffle him to the bottom of the line and that would line up and that would hurt his counting stats a little bit, but, but right now, fingers crossed, he should be, you know, he should be a great asset to that team as it makes the push. Yeah, and they've got some pieces coming back too. I mean, the Osmani Grandal will be back probably in September at some point, as well as Luis Roberts. So, like, yeah, that that batting order is is kind of up in the air right now with Chicago. That's a really good point, Matt. Let me double back to Diego Castillo just to pull apart the ripples of that a little bit further. It was just a fascinating week, and you know, if you think about the order of the way things unfolded there, it started with the Mariners trading Graveman to Houston, which for about 15 minutes made it look like Paul Seawald was the closer in Seattle. But then Diego Castillo ends up in Seattle, who demotes, looks like so far it demotes Seawald back to the setup role. Last night in a non-save op- opportunity, it was Seawald in the eighth and Castillo in the ninth. And then it opens up the Tampa save, save situation again. I was just looking at trying to figure out how we're allocating the Tampa playing time. It's uh, Chris Olson on the raise for us. And (laughs) he's got um, six guys in the Tampa pen at between 10 and 20% saves, which basically to me says shrug emoji, right? (laughs) It's like, we don't know. We've given up trying to figure out what Tampa's going to do. Nick Anderson's coming back. You got Jeffrey Springs from the left side. We've seen Kittredge. We've seen Fairbanks. You know, that doesn't even count for. Fireson, who's probably the in-house leader in saves on that roster right now. So, uh, you know, we do, that that Castillo trade had direct, and what the Mariners were doing, shuffling relievers, had direct impact on three closer situations. I'm going to mention Andrew Chafin again, the left-hander who went from Oakland uh, to Oakland from Chicago in uh, what looked like a fairly intermediate sort of deal. He's having a really good season. Uh, Matt mentioned that. Uh, 286 ERA, 084 whip, a 122 leverage index, which means I think Oakland has plans for him. And Oakland is the kind of team, because of how they use their rotation especially, where there could be a lot of vulture wins up for grabs. We saw it earlier this season with Yusmero Pettit, and maybe uh, uh, Chafin becomes the left-handed compliment to Yusmero Pettit. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see that uh, come around. Uh, moving along again, uh, how about a minor trade? These are the white ones on your score sheet, but which one was the most important of those from the fantasy perspective and why? And we'll start this time with Ryan Bloomfield. 
Um, yeah, lots to choose from. Uh, I think probably the the Danny Duffy going to L.A. I, I think is going to be pretty interesting in terms of how he is used. And again, that's another kind of NL crossover situation. Um, Duffy had a really good start to the season when uh, he was with Kansas City, and then and then kind of you know petered out and had some injury problems. But you know, I subscribe to the fact that I like to follow front offices that that know what they're doing and, and the Dodgers not only do they see something in, in in Danny Duffy but they also in terms of usage they are notorious for especially um, you know in August September if they're conserving arms and I know they're in the middle of the, the NL West race with two different arms right now will those will all of their starters go deep into games or will they use Danny Duffy as almost a piggyback guy to get those vulture wins in, in in LA on a team that's going to win a lot of games. So in terms of Danny Duffy's actual role, yeah, I think he's someone you could probably get cheap and fab because people will just see that Danny Duffy's in the bullpen for LA and kind of write him off. But I think there's some vulture win potential there. And uh, again, that fact that he was so good early in the season and the fact that LA saw that as well and, and, and went for him in the um, at the trade deadline. So for that, that kind of variety of reasons, Danny Duffy's one who really might fly under the radar, but, but definitely caught my eye as something that, uh, somebody that you should have your eye on in deep leagues. I really like Daniel Hudson going to San Diego because he steps in as the, the top right-handed setup guy. Uh, and, uh, I looked up his, his splits against right-handed batters. His OPS allowed is 0.514. So that's a pretty nice number to have there in the late innings. And I think that that he'll make a difference, particularly in saves and holds leagues uh, for the Padres. I'm going to cheat since I went, since I'm going near the end here and I'm not hopefully not sniping anybody, but there's a whole class of trades that I thought was fascinating here. We, we've talked about the closers getting traded, Kimbrell and Gibby uh, Garcia getting moved from Miami and Brad Hand getting moved from Washington to Toronto. But the interesting thing about that is all three of those teams that were selling closers also sold the primary setup man, who we thought yeah. might be the next guy in line for saves. Matt just mentioned Hudson, and you know John Curtis got tra- got traded from Toronto too to leave Anthony Bender in place. It's Kyle Finnegan, who looks like he's the guy in Washington. And then Tapero left the, white, left right. the Cubs as well Cubs as Kimbrell which leaves us looking at the likes of Rex Brothers and who knows who else in the Cubs bullpen. So if you were fabbing, you know, thought you were being cool and fabbing the Taperas and Curtises and those guys last week, thinking you might walk into saves this week, Seawald's another one of those. You know, it's, you know, some of these teams are going way further down the closer depth chart than we were anticipating here. Guilty as charged there. I was going after after some of those guys hard and fab and didn't didn't go deep enough. Didn't think we'd have two layers of relievers getting dealt out. Uh, more more madness to this trade deadline. Well, just to add on to what Ray was saying, I you know the Tapera move was a big one for me because I think a lot of fantasy owners. I know I've been talking about the Chicago trades somewhat today, but um, I think a lot of fantasy owners were looking at that ERA and using that to move to move the needle in that category and when you look at his batting average and balls and uh, on balls and play this season um it i think it's round 204 uh i that just screams regression so i think he'll probably be used situationally in chicago but i think that number may move up 
and he may lose a, a big part of his value going forward. My choice is Ryan Tapera, but maybe for a little bit of a different reason. I think Ryan Tapera actually could add some value here, also having a fine year, and it might get lost in the fact that Kimbrell got acquired. I think he's going to find some high leverage work on a team that we know has a lot of run scoring to turn trailing situations into leading situations, and therefore might be in a position again to vulture wins, much as I suggested with Andrew Chafin. Okay, guys, let's take a quick break here. Uh, going to give you 15 seconds each to make a sales pitch for first pitch arizona ray it's your baby let's why don't we start with you <laughs> so you know it, here's here's my sales pitch you know there's a lot of concerns out there the world's a strange place right now uh but you know registrations are still going like hotcakes despite the fact that i don't i, I don't think we can confidently say we know what the world is going to look like in october right now which is a valid concern and for anybody who's still sitting on the fence i I totally get that. We're trying to work up some COVID protocols that will give everyone a little more confidence to attend the event. We should be able to announce those soon. But I'm frankly, you know, stunned in a positive way at the response we're getting, even though in the current world, October seems like it's a really long time away. And I think that just speaks to how much fun everybody has at this weekend and how anxious everyone is to get back out there and see people in person. So let's all... if you're thinking about joining us, you should join us, and uh, we're all hoping it will be a really good time and that the, uh, the the world situation will allow us to fully enjoy ourselves. Alex Becky. Well, for my first pitch, I remember all of you, uh, the way you treated me and how well you treated me, and most people told me, if you go once, you'll go every year since then, and I have. It's just a fantastic experience. It's one of those places that you could relate to anybody just by simply talking baseball and just the camaraderie that's formed there is something that you'll treasure forever. I know I do. Ryan. Three quick words from me, friends, fire pit and beer. And notice I haven't even mentioned uh, baseball in that to to piggyback on Alex. It's the camaraderie. If you, even if you've gone the last 10 years or if you've gone the first year, everyone is super relatable, reaches out to you. And it's just, uh, to me, it's like a three-day party with the icing on the cake being Arizona Fall League games, all day long seminars, and just being able to chat, you know, baseball with with everyone that you kind of interact with online throughout the year. Um, but but yeah, those uh, that the, the Friends Fire Pit and Beer. And if you don't know Fire Pit, you, you need to come out to first pitch and, and see what we mean when I say that. And Matt Dodge, you've been a fixture at, at the uh, First Pitch Arizona for many years and really running the show from the back of the uh, of the auditorium where we do all of the main seminars and the big plenums and stuff like that. And I understand you're not going this year, uh, taking a year off. Explain to people why you've been going to First Pitch Arizona as long as you have. Uh, well, it starts way back when, when I went before it wasn't even called First Pitch Arizona and there were just a dozen or two guys, and we had a rain out in Arizona, and we spent a whole afternoon in front of a chart bed with one of the co-founders of it, and we had a blast. And you just meet people that you stay in touch with through years and years and years and years. Uh, you know, I stand behind a registration desk, so I see everybody, but there, everybody sees everybody. And there's baseball, and there's good baseball. There's Albert Pujols breaking a scoreboard in Scottsdale Stadium. That's how you know Matt's been going for, <laughs> for that long. 
I, I remember when Gehrig smacked one over the center field fence and ran around the bases backwards, he did. <laughs> yeah, that was marvelous Marv Throneberry. <laughs> Probably, yeah. I've been going, I don't know, I missed one year in a string of about 10, I think, and um, I talk about this on the regular Baseball HQ Radio podcasts, and I'll sum it up with what I say at the end of those promos a lot of the people who go to first pitch Arizona call it the best weekend of the year. I'll concur with that, and I'll just remind you, it's called First Pitch Arizona. Go to BaseballHQ.com, check out the big orange logo on the side of the right-hand side of the homepage, and get more information. It's really, truly an awful lot of fun, and I hope that we get to see you out there. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio. <laughs> And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here in our first ever trade deadline special roundtable edition with Matt Dodge, Ray Murphy, Alex Becky, and Ryan Bloomfield. And guys, let's get back started. We're going to talk about some individual players now, starting with a hitter. Which hitter got traded and got a big boost in his value, do you think, based on park change, roster change, batting order position change, all of those kind of things. Contextual changes, I guess, and we'll start with Matt Dodge. My favorite is Joey Gallo for this. I see Joey Gallo going to Yankee Stadium, very friendly for a left-handed hitter home run. Uh, I know, Patrick, you pointed out that he hadn't played much in Yankee Stadium beforehand, and I was really surprised, and I looked at that, and for some reason he'd only played three games in Yankee Stadium, yet he's played 38 games in his career in the other stadiums in the division, and he's OPSing somewhere around 850, 860 in those stadiums. So I like him in that lineup, and particularly with new arrival, Anthony Rizzo hitting behind him. He's the guy I think has got a big impact for the rest of the season. Ray, you're a projections guy and a stats guy. Is there anything to this idea of protection in the batting order uh, I know Joey Gallo, I think he's going to hit, if he's going to play there next year as well, probably. Uh, I think he could hit 60 home runs in Yankee Stadium, really, and, uh, and a big pot full of them in the latter part of this season. But how much credence is there in the idea of batting order protection? I'm less interested in the protection aspect of it. I, I, the studies that I've seen, I don't know there have been any of that recently, but I always seem to sort of minimize that effect. I think the thing that is really interesting about the additions from the Yankees though with Rizzo and Gallo is sure you think of the power with those guys but I think what they were really trying to do was buy on base percentage as much as anything else and having Gallo and Rizzo at the top of that lineup is just you know it's the reason the Yankees are treading water this year is because they haven't been that good a run scoring team and sure they've got plenty of power but you know when I, I think they've learned over the last few years that they're very dependent on the, on that power. And if it doesn't come consistently or doesn't come against good pitching in the playoffs, bad things happen. And I think Rizzo and Gallo are a nod toward trying to get more people on base in front of the boppers. And it helps that those guys bop themselves too. But I think that lineup's going to turn over a lot more and that Yankee offensive engine is going to get going. And those guys are going to be right in the middle of it. And who's your hitter who's going to gain? So I, I went through an exercise this week where I, you know, something I like to do a lot of is, um, I throw out a bad take on Twitter and everybody tells me about why it's wrong. And then I learn the error of my ways. <laughs> um, <laughs> in this case, um, it was after the Graveman to uh, Houston deal where I sort of commented that I didn't really understand 
what the Mariners were doing because Abraham Toro is a nice piece, but they didn't really have a place to play him. And, you know, Graven's helping them win more now. And we didn't, that was before we knew about Diego Castillo and all the other moves they were going to make to sort of replenish the bullpen. But the piece I missed was that, um, that Toro, while he was hitting pretty well in Houston, I thought his opportunity was going to drop, dry up when Bregman got hurt. And I didn't see where he was going to play in Seattle. I thought he was more of a next year and beyond a play after Kyle Seeger leaves. But um, they, sure enough, they've got to put him at second base the last couple of nights, which is a place where he's played before but hadn't played at all this year in Houston. And it, suddenly it looks like he's a better bet at second base than Dylan Moore in Houston. Moore hasn't been hitting much. His fantasy value has been propped up by the steals. But, you know, Torres has been providing some sneaky power, and now I think he's going to keep playing. So I think that's great. And uh, Toro is a nice target if he's available in your league this week. Alex Becky, who's your hitter value winner for the trade deadline season? You know, I this is kind of an under-the-radar move, I think, on some level. But I really like the Adam Duvall trade back to Atlanta. I think those are familiar settings. I think that uh, he's in a better lineup. I think that, you know, Miami is somewhat cavernous when it comes to home runs, although that didn't necessarily stop him so far this year, but I think we may see a big improvement depending on, you know, I mean, obviously Atlanta lost Ronald Acuna Jr., which is a big loss, and his production won't necessarily replace that. But I think it's a, a great opportunity for him and for the Braves, especially to add a lot of depth. Ryan Bloomfield, who's your value gainer among the hitters traded? I'm going to go Chris Bryant. I could see a rejuvenated Chris Bryant really tearing it up down the stretch. You got to think the the mood in Chicago these last couple months and in Brian's case these last couple of years with the grievance and playing time and that and and, and service time sorry that sort of thing probably weighed on him and that clubhouse the last few months with with Baez Rizzo Kimbrell I mean trade rumors everywhere in the back of their minds are thinking you know where are we going to be in two months I think that that might have an impact on kind of the psyche of these guys so Chris Bryant getting some clarity on a winning team now. And I, 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 at least I have this preconceived notion of San Francisco being kind of a place where hitters go to die, but that has actually been the exact opposite the last two seasons, both from a really from a lineup standpoint and a park standpoint. So going to a better lineup in San Francisco on a winning team, I think Chris Bryant, who has shown that he was pretty banged up in 2020 and a healthy Bryant skills wise has been a lot better this season. You compound that with uh, playing on a on a winning team and having some clarity over these last two months, it's really going to be a, a boon for him. So I'll go Brian in terms of uh, on the, more the mental side of, of why he would get a boon. I had a bunch of names written down, you guys, including Joey Gallo, who got mentioned, including uh, Abraham Toro, who got mentioned. And I'm going to mention somebody who got mentioned earlier, which is Jorge Soler going to Atlanta from a pretty dismal situation in Kansas City. And I, I have him on a couple of rosters, so I'm really hoping he's been on a burner lately, and I'm hoping he can keep that momentum going in a team that I don't like their playoff chances a lot, but I like them a lot better than I like Kansas City's playoff chances. So maybe the environment change will help Jorge Soler continue to rediscover his power potential and uh, and keep his burner going. And before we move on, we should say hello to our former Baseball HQ American League analyst here at Baseball HQ Radio. Jock Thompson joins us from some very sunny-looking place, Jock. Well, that's kind of agreeing with with, uh, with Ryan on, uh, on Chris Bryant. Uh, the other hitters, I think, are interesting from a flyer standpoint. 
and I, I read a little bit about it yesterday with the kids in Kansas City. Now that Solaire's gone, there's a lot of DH and first base time that's coming available. And there's going to be a handful of outfield at bats, believe it or not. Jorge Soler did play some outfield this year um, in Kansas City. And uh, I think uh, Nick Prado is probably going to get a chance. I don't, I don't see Bobby Hood being challenged a lot down in AAA. They moved him there for a reason. It's going to be interesting to see what happens there. Obviously, anything can happen in two months. They can fall flat on their face. But uh, those guys are kind of intriguing to me. Let's move on, you guys, to pitchers. Which traded pitchers' fantasy value do you think gets a big boost from, a, from the park changes and other contextual changes? And, uh, Jock, since you're fresh on the scene, why don't you start us off this time? I'm going to go with a non-traded guy, and it's something I found out when I woke up this morning. I'm not sure whether it happened last night or, uh, or this morning, but Reed Detmers is coming up for the Angels to start Sunday. Um, as far as starting pitchers go, I, I don't think any of them got a boost where they were traded. I mean, if you look at Ilga Barrios, he went from from uh, uh, a, a decent offensive part to a worse one. Scherzer is kind of a wash. Uh, L.A. plays offensively friendly, but uh, – if, if you're looking at flyers and a guy who's really doing well in AAA you know, with Reed Detmers. We talked about the you know surprise that Kimbrell got traded to someplace where it's not totally clear that he's the closer. The flip side of that equation is Ian Kennedy, who I think we all expected to be traded to a place where he would be a setup man. But now he finds himself in Philadelphia, where I think he's probably going to displace Ranger Suarez. And now we're living in, you know, I have Ian Kennedy in a couple of leagues and I benched him this week because he had a two-game week on Tuesday and Wednesday, and I thought he'd be on another team and pitch in the eighth inning by the weekend. Luckily, I didn't cut him. I only benched him, so I could put him back in next weekend as the probable Phillies closer. But you know, we've somehow got through a trade deadline where Ian Kennedy has a better path to saves than Craig Kimbrell, I think, and I, uh, I, I could not have bet on that on Monday. <laughs> That is interesting, and especially since Ian Kennedy also gains in team context, just moving from Texas to Philadelphia, even if he was closing full-time in both, obviously Philadelphia's got some uh, uh, aspirations to keep going, and they tried to improve their team a little bit, and just a better team all the way around. I think it's a very good move for Ian Kennedy and for anybody who has him on a fantasy roster. Alex Becky, who do you like? Well, one of the guys that I really like, and you probably remember this PD from back on June 4th when we talked about Joe Ryan as a frequent flyer. I think that uh, he may be moving it in, into an excellent situation. As you may remember, he's somebody that learned to uh, create spin on his uh, pitches through playing water polo, and he's actually a, uh, playing on the U.S. Olympic team for baseball right now, but I think that Obviously, with the trade of Barrios and Hap, I think that there's a chance that he may be close to moving into a rotation spot, if not this year, possibly next year. And I think that another thing worth mentioning, since we're talking about the Twins, is the the Hansel Robles trade. One of the things to pay attention to from a fantasy impact is the Twins have kind of adopted a new, new approach this year. Before, they used to have more of a traditional closer. And now they've set it up, and we'll see if this is a trend where more teams are adopting this. But they usually have two to three guys where they assign them play, they assign them batters. So from a fantasy perspective, it's very difficult to pick who to put in, even on a daily basis, because you don't know which batters are going to be up for the ninth inning. So, for example, they may say to Taylor Rogers, if he were healthy, you have the top three batters in the order. So if they come up, in the seventh inning, eighth inning, or ninth inning, then you warm up. 
And I think that's a big difference. And from an analytics standpoint, it may be interesting to see how this plays out, especially if the Twins start winning more games after rebuilding slightly for next year. Alex Colomay and uh, Duffy also in that mix? I I think so, yeah. I, I would probably take Duffy over Colomay right now, but Colomay's ha- been gaining a lot of steam lately, it seems like. Moving along, Ryan Bloomfield, what do you think? I'm going to flip this around a little bit and go with something kind of tangentially related to the trade deadline um, and, and say really any starting pitcher going against the likes of Pittsburgh, Washington, <laughs> Chicago, Cubs, Arizona, maybe Minnesota, um, the rest of the way. And I kind of say that half jokingly, but from a kind of a game theory standpoint and a streaming standpoint, I am looking to target anybody facing those lineups that are going to quite frankly look historically bad uh, these last couple of months. We kind of saw that yesterday with with Washington playing the Cubs and those two lineups that they threw out there. So I do think there are some streaming opportunities uh, depending obviously on the, the size of your league, but um, where you have even a mid to low level starting pitcher going against those lineups uh, could be a, a hidden edge. So I, I would, I would, I would every week or, you know, whatever your uh, frequency is for lineup changes in your league, target those lineups who have essentially mailed it in for 2021, because there's value to be had uh, playing that kind of competition streaming game. Well, we talked about him a little bit earlier, but Diego Castillo going from the who knows who's going to close in Tampa Bay to having what looks to be a regular gig in Seattle, and Seattle still thinks that they're going to hang on for a wild card or try to, uh, puts him in high leverage spots and you know improves his save outlook from what it was when he was still in Tampa. So he's the guy I like there to make a make an improvement just based on those counting stats at the end of the game. For me, the biggest gainers might be Jose Berrios or Ian Kennedy, I already mentioned, so I'll go with Berrios in Toronto. I think that his his gain is going to come from the team context. He's a guy who had an awful lot of trouble getting run support, and he had an awful lot of trouble getting bullpen support while Minnesota was trying to figure things out in that regard. And Heaven knows Toronto can score runs. We've seen it all year. I mean, they have situations where they're, they have cleanup hitters batting seventh because there's just too many good hitters in that lineup. And then, of course, they've had a poor bullpen up till now, but they've really shorted up with some of the moves that you guys have mentioned. They added Brad Hand and a couple of other fairly useful names. Joaquin Soria comes to mind again. And so they're not going to have to rely as much on lesser pitchers to take high leverage innings as the uh, rest of the season goes along. I I think Jose Brios is in a pretty good spot. My one concern is he's been prone to giving up home runs and heaven knows Roger Center is not where you want a guy who gives up a lot of home runs. So I guess... That's uh, something that we have to think about. Let's go back to the uh, individual hitters again and talk about the biggest decline that you're fearing for a hitter, maybe on your own roster or that you've been thinking about based on an incoming player or uh, some other kind of contextual change. We'll start this time with Ray Murphy. I'm pouring one out for a personal favorite of mine this year. Uh, It's Luis Urias, who's been really an asset on a couple of my teams and now has been sort of over-recruited by the uh, additions to the Brewers lineup. You know, Urias is a second-base, third-base shortstop eligible who's had some power and some speed this year, but now with Rowdy Telez at first and 
Wong healthy at second and Escobar at third and Willie Adamas really taking off at shortstop. He kind of falls back into the utility role here. And I'm kind of bummed about that because I've been getting a lot of mileage out of him so far this year. So uh, moment of silence for Luis Urias' fantasy value. Alex? Well, I think the one that I'm most worried about is Anthony Rizzo going to the Yankees. I know there's a lot of excitement about the short porch, but on the other hand, depending on what happens with Luke Voigt, Joey Gallo, I can see a platoon situation developing there. I know he's a left-handed bat. He adds that left-handed um, aspect to, or that left-handed element to the Yankees lineup. But I think that they may be able to adjust uh, uh, based on Gallo and uh Boyd and Rizzo, depending on different lineups, which may reduces fantasy value significantly. I think the the increased competition in San Diego with the addition of Adam Frazier is going to uh, mean some kind of ripple effects in their outfield. I, I don't think I, I think Jake Cronenworth is is probably playing second base more often than Adam Frazier will be with with uh, Frazier probably seeing more games in the outfield. And so something has to give there. Will Myers has has struggled pretty pretty bad this this year. So he'd probably be one who may not get as much playing time or might strictly be in a in a platoon going forward with the presence of Adam Frazier. So I'll go with Myers. Um just having more kind of cooks in that kitchen uh means less playing time down the road. Uh Freddie Galvis went from a regular job in Baltimore to a bench job in Philadelphia. Uh, short trip, but um, he's going to have to fight for playing time there, and so the counting stats will all suffer as a result. Yeah, um, similar to what Brian was talking about in San Diego, uh, L.A. with the, having two shortstops now, they're pushing Chris Taylor to the outfield probably, and kind of means that Cody Bellinger, well, first off, Gavin Lux is, 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 is lost, and so is Cody Bellinger. Neither are playing real well, neither are hitting well. Lux is currently on the I.L., I don't see Lux getting a lot of playing time back, and uh, and Bellinger's really going to have to turn it around before he loses playing time. So, so that that's the real situation I'm looking at here. Kind of funny, just to butt in, like I, I never thought I would say this, but is Cody Bellinger not playing as much? Is that addition by subtraction to your fantasy roster? I mean, that guy's hitting 156, five home runs, 167 at bats. It's just it's crazy how far he has fallen. And yeah, uh, with every passing day, I agree with you, Jock. Like. It makes it tough, despite what Bellinger has been, makes it tough to throw him out there on a daily basis. They're not going to say Chris Taylor's career year. He's been carrying them lately. Absolutely. Well, Jock, you took my thunder entirely on this one because I had this whole Los Angeles playing time situation as somebody's going to lose playing time somewhere. I couldn't say for sure who it was going to be, but I suspect they end up with cigarette short Trey Turner when he's back from his ailments at second base for the time being. And as you said, Chris Taylor's got to play somewhere. He'll play second base for the nonce until uh, until the, the new arrival, Trey Turner, is ready, and I think he goes to the outfield, and then uh, pretty much Bellinger looks like the odd man out. But I'm curious, Jock, what you think about Gavin Lux's future, because I wondered if the acquisition of Trey Turner, and by all accounts, the Dodgers hinged the whole Scherzer deal on also getting Trey Turner while they could. They gave up some good prospects, but uh, they have a one of them was a catcher, and they have a catcher who looks good for the next four or five years. So I wonder if there's a possibility here that they think that they can just let Corey Seager go at the end of this season and, and find his own way in a new pasture and go with Turner and Lux as their keystone combo or possibly uh, Turner and Chris Taylor. 
Well, obviously it makes you think because, um, I mean, Lex is still there. I, I expected him to be gone in this, in this trading deadline, but, um, yeah, if, uh, if, if Seager's going to be a free agent next year and they're not going to sign him and they probably won't, that why would they, they have Turner for, for, for a year, an all-star shortstop you know, there. I would think they would give Lex another chance. And the fact that he's not gone now, maybe that's how they're thinking. Okay, and finally, the pitchers whose fantasy values get the biggest declines, whether from incomers, park changes, etc. We'll close this one out by starting with Ray Murphy. I think that has to be the deposed closers, uh, in particular, Hand and Rich Rodriguez. And to be fair, I think both of those guys have some path to save since they're both opposite hand of the closer they're paired with now, Rodriguez with Will Smith in Atlanta and hand with Jordan Romano and whoever else gets the ball late in the game for Toronto. But, you know, th- those guys, you know, neither one perhaps surprisingly, but both uh, both see diminished value for the last two months in my book. I completely agree with Ray. And if I could just add something on, um, you know, obviously, Yumi Garcia going to Houston, I think he loses a lot of value in, in terms of fantasy. And I think it may even affect Ryan Presley's value at some point. So that's a situation worth watching. I think the other, the, the other big closer loser, and this isn't my pick, but Kendall Graven is worth shouting out, just going again from a full-time role into the bullpen machine that is now Houston. So as if um, a lot of us didn't have more reasons to not like the Houston Astros, any fantasy manager who had any of these above closers on their team that have been gobbled up by the Astros, uh, that is just one more reason to do so. Um, my pick, though, is going to be uh, Andrew Heaney who is someone who I've written about multiple times on The Speculator uh, in terms of somebody who has really outpitched, from a skills perspective, outpitched his um, his results, uh, 527 ERA, and we've got him down for an XERA right at four. The problem with, with Heaney has been the fly ball rate and the home run rate, and going from Anaheim to the Bronx is probably not going to fix that, especially when you're – facing the Rays, the Red Sox, the Blue Jays um, on a more regular basis. So um, Andrew Heaney goes from one of my kind of by guys to someone who I will maybe reevaluate next year. Um, I Ray took the words right out of my mouth. I have not had a chance to analyze all the closers coming and going, but there's a lot of closers that lost value in, the, uh, in this deal. They're either sharing jobs or they're no longer in jobs. Um, that's something I have to look at, but that's really I that's that's the worst thing that happened in the trade deadline, I think, fantasy wise to pitching. Six closers lost yeah. their jobs. Twenty percent of the closers in major league baseball lost their jobs over the past week to a partial job or to a to a model. It's, well, this six is, is probably more six is probably more than twenty percent because the denominator really isn't thirty, right? There were enough okay. there were enough buddy jobs to begin with that we were somewhere in the twenties. So, so, so the message is go to saves plus holds. Yeah. Fair enough. Spread that value. Man. Absolutely. <laughs> That's an argument for another time. I just wanted to throw into the same idea. Uh, Jordan Romano in Toronto was the closer, and in the first game after Brad Hand showed up, they put Hand in in the eighth inning and Romano in the ninth, but that might be a lefty-righty thing. They haven't committed themselves to Romano. What they have said is they like Romano as a high-leverage guy whenever the other team's best hitters are coming up in an inning. And so uh, Romano was probably a little safer three days ago than he was after Friday because 
the one of the reasons they were going to use Romano in the highest levered spots is who else did they have? You know, Dolis was terrible. He got hurt. Then he came back, but we don't know. And then all the rest of them were just god-awful. And now all of a sudden, if you're Charlie Montoya or if you're the club, you're looking around and you say, hey, we got a guy here who's, you know, got seasons of 30-plus saves in his background. Maybe we can exploit this Jordan Romano against the best guy a little more effectively. But that means another one of these situations that you guys have talked about, which is the saves will be split. Therefore, the value will be split because so much value from closers comes up through the saves route. And one last question I have for you guys. This was, as we've noted, an exceptionally busy trade deadline frenzy, and I'm wondering why you thought that was and how likely it is to be repeated. And Matt Dodge, why don't you go first? Golly, I have no idea why it happened like this. Um, I, I can't wrap my brain around it, um, but I expect, I don't, so I don't know what caused it, and I don't know whether it's going to happen again or not. Um, I pass. <laughs> I, I don't have a fully developed theory here, but I, my, my take is it's got something to do with the upcoming CBA negotiations. I don't know what the conversations are inside the game about anything from how rules for free agency and arbitration and years of player control might change to whether there even is going to be a delayed start to the 2022 season and what that means for prospect development uh, if that happens on top of a lost 2020 you know, when you see some teams like the Phillies and Yankees, who I think normally based on their standing position wouldn't be buyers buying, and then some other teams trying to do the whole buy and sell at the same time thing, it, maybe it's just that we've got a whole generation of more creative GMs now, and this was the first time we saw it. But I, I, I my suspicion is there's something under the covers about what people think the game is going to look like a year from now that led them to be more aggressive now. Well, just adding on to that, I think this has been a really, really exciting trade deadline. I've really enjoyed watching all the deals come together in the flurry. I think the change from in MLB rules to not allowing waiver trades has made a huge, huge difference. It's put a lot of pressure and a, a great sense of urgency on teams to get this done now rather than waiting and passing players through waivers. And then there's always that shock value when a star player is put on waivers, even though there's no real intention of trading them. All that's gone now. And now we're just at this date. And if they continue this, I think the trade deadlines are going to get better and better. I think one of the things that's interesting, too, when you're watching the trends is the changes in GMs often signify changes in, in the team where they're going to break down or build up a team. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And some of the fire sales I expected to happen didn't happen. And some of them that did happen, I didn't really expect them to be that extensive. I didn't expect the Cubs to go that far. And the Twins didn't trade a lot of players that I thought they might. And they were considered to be big sellers at this deadline. So I think going forward, it's going to be fun to see how this plays out next year. Yeah, I think Ray touched on something broader that I've thought a lot about. I think a lot of it's just uncertainty. I don't think I don't think these owners and, and teams know what's going to happen next year with the with the labor issues. Um, there's a lot of other uncertainty too, as, as as we all know. And I, anyone who thinks we're going back to what they think is normal, you know, before these last two years, I I think they're they're whistling in the dark. I think uh, I think a lot of these guys are willing to pick up the pieces, you know, when they have to, and, and you know, and go for it right now. I wondered too about the uh, the front office machinations that are going on behind the scenes here. This idea that they don't know what's going on 
in the subsequent years with the CBA, with player costs, with player movement costs, and all of these kinds of things. And they're striking while the iron is hot, for want of a better term or to use a cliche. And I also wonder if, as we get more and more of the stat-oriented quant guys into these front offices, whether somebody has realized somewhere along that the most efficient way to do a teardown is to tear it right down to the studs and start over, rather than trying to, you know, piece out a piece here and piece out a piece there. It looks like Washington, for instance, has decided that everybody's out except for Juan Soto, and they're going to build the entire thing around Juan Soto in the future. And maybe they're looking down the road to when they have to pay Juan Soto, which has some implications for them as well. And the other thing I wonder, and I didn't keep close track of this, so maybe somebody here can set me straight, but I noticed that in the early going of the trades, people were already talking about the relatively low cost in prospects. When the first trades happened, there weren't a lot of big value, big name guys being moved. And I wonder if that emboldened some of the GMs as we got farther towards the deadline to play hardball as far as I want your premium guy, but you're not getting my top five guys. You're not going to get my top prospect or top couple of prospects, with the exception of the Dodgers handed over a pretty good pile, but look what they got. You know, they got a Cy Young winner and a and a, a perennial all-star shortstop. But other than that, the amount of prospects that didn't get traded seems to me to indicate that the GMs making those deals realized that the price had gone down and that therefore they were a little more willing to be uh, out there in the market because they weren't paying top dollar for what they were buying. Yeah, you always got to remember that there are it's kind, there's kind of two markets here, right? There's the there's the two month rental market, which the Marte Luzardo deal is probably the exception to, where you're just trying to pick off a couple of you're taking a couple of flyers on usually guys lower in the minors. If basically if the selling team ever gets the guy they acquired in the majors, they probably win the deal in exchange for two months of whatever it is they sold off. But then you get into the more complicated deals where guys like Trey Turner and Barrios. Etc. And Gallo, who have you know, who have at least one more year on their contracts, or are still arm eligible, etc. And then the valuations get way more complicated. Um, it seemed to me the rental market almost bottomed out this year, and the guys were getting sold off for for not much on the two month rentals. And the, the other trades were more interesting in terms of prospect value. If if I could add one more thing too, one of the things that we often overlook in trades is the human factor of this. I mean, you sometimes hear the players talking about moving their families and their dog and changing schools and different things. But uh, one of the deals that's flown under the radar is Jesus Lazardo going back to Miami, where he's from Florida. He went to high school in Florida. So um, Freddie Galvis going back to Philadelphia, Ed Duvall going back to Atlanta. I think there's a sense of comfort that sometimes influences these trades that goes beyond just the numbers. I was listening to another podcast where they were talking about the trade deal and the number of apparently, and I, I don't know this from firsthand experience, but apparently the number of players who get traded every year at the deadline, including this year, who hear about it from someplace other than their own team is really, really surprising. And it makes me think that as much as we might like to think that, oh, let's do old Joe a favor and send him back to you know where he went to college, I think that the modern general manager, if anything, might even be more bloodthirsty than, you know, the old guys back when they, before the reserve clause, when they could do whatever they wanted, they might have been a little kinder because these guys in the front offices now seem pretty corporate and kind of more Jeff Bezos than Warren Buffett. Even with uh, the Nelson Cruz trade, 
you know, with the Twins, I know they got a pretty good haul in return, but I think that kind of reminded me of the Jim Tomei trade to Cleveland several years ago where Nelson Cruz is well-loved on that team, but to give him the opportunity at his age to play for a contender, I think that factors in as well. So um, that's obviously a consideration. But I think that uh, uh, I think going forward, we'll see a lot more of the human factor being analytically uh, implemented with some of this stuff. It's a very interesting situation, as all of us agree. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out in future years with these uh, tremendous volumes of players being moved and traded. I read it was almost 100 players who changed spots. I think that might be a little high on the estimate. I, I, I My calculations had it around 90 or so. But that's a lot of guys to be moving in a, in a one-week span or shortly longer than that. So it'll be fun. We'll come back and try it again next year. Ray Murphy, thanks very much for helping us out. And we'll talk to you again, I guess, for next Friday's regular edition. Sounds good. Great job here, PD. Thanks for pulling us together. Matt Dodge, thanks very much. Thanks a bunch. Glad to be here. And we'll miss you at First Pitch Arizona this fall. Ryan Bloomfield, thanks a million. Yep, always always a pleasure, gentlemen, and, and see a lot of you in, in Arizona this fall. And because we can see each other, I can say, Ryan, maybe you could get uh, over to a bed somewhere and grab some shut-eye before your little guy wakes up and uh, starts the cycle all over again. Alex, thanks. Thank you, PD. Thanks, everyone. Been fun. And Jock, thanks. Uh, I was going to say enjoy the rest of your day, but I'm looking at your weather, and I can't imagine you wouldn't enjoy the rest of your day where you are. Indeed, it's the only place I don't complain anymore, PD. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Saturday, July the 31st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 37 of the 2021 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest experts for this special Trade Deadline Roundtable Edition, Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our reporter on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio, Alex Becky, an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our frequent flyer commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio, Ryan Bloomfield, speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com, Matt Dodge, playing time tomorrow analyst who covers the American League Central for Baseball HQ, and Jock Thompson, the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, an analyst at the site, and the Reporter Emeritus on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go wherever you catch your pods, and if they'll let you, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. All those stars really help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going and growing. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring the always interesting Paul Sporer of Rotographs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. That's Paul Sporer coming up Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. See you Friday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. 
Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.